Jordan Schneider, the host of China Econ Talk, here today with my podcast idol, Russ Roberts of, well, Econ Talk. He's a research fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution and the host of the Econ Talk podcast, a weekly interview-based show vaguely about economics, but over time has evolved into an extended meditation on the human condition, particularly as we all strive to adapt to the 21st century. If you want a weekly cue to think more critically and holistically about the world, please do pause here and listen to a few China Econ Talk episodes and see if they've hooked you like they've hooked me over the past few years. So even though this conversation has little to nothing to do with China, seeing as Russ served as the inspiration for this podcast, I hope you all find it interesting. Russ, welcome to China Econ Talk. Great to be with you. So Russ, how many hours of your life have you spent scheduling? Well, that's a good question. So we've done um, 665 episodes, roughly. It probably takes about, I don't know. That was that was a joke. That was that was not a serious. What question. the scheduling? Well, I think it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you know I wonder how much of my <laughs> okay, time okay. I wonder how much of my time on Econ Talk is taken up by reading the books, um, the interview itself, the post interview edits and additions of links to the episode, the scheduling. You know, sometimes a guest can take fifteen or twenty emails back and forth because there's you know some problem or other. So I thought it was a serious question. <laughs> what do you think the correlation is between good guests and you know scheduling dilemmas or the amount of prep you feel like you have to put into each episode? You know, it's a that's a really interesting question. I don't. My favorite episodes are almost never the favorite episodes of the listeners. Usually, I've read the book already that the guest has written, if it's a book, and I read about twenty to twenty-five books a year for Econ Talk, and the rest are based on articles or other things. But for me, a great conversation is where the guest and I explore some topic related to their ideas or their work, and something new comes up in my mind or their mind. And that's the sweet spot for me. It doesn't happen every week, of course. It's hard to do. Um, some people are uncomfortable talking to a stranger over Skype. And so I often have to deal with that where a guest is sometimes not the best explainer or describer of their own ideas. I have to clarify stuff or they're just quiet. You know, they don't have much to say. They have a lot to write. But uh, so sometimes you get surprised. And you have a guest who just who writes a fabulous book, but can't talk about it very well. And that's just that happens. So you have to be prepared for that. You have to be prepared for the surprises that come up along the interview. I, I usually have a list of oh, maybe 15 questions, maybe a few more that I want to ask. And sometimes I get to all of them. And sometimes I do get to half of them because we go into other things. So I never want to just ask questions and have the guest answer them and then move down to the next question. I've over the years tried to make it more of a conversation and less of a quote interview. It's a slight difference, but I think it's an important one. Sure. So let's talk through the kind of life cycle of the preparation and go in, in a little bit more detail into the points that you just brought up. So first, when it comes to finding the guests, have you learned to screen better over time? Well, when I started, people said, well, this won't last very long because you'll run out of people to interview. That was in 2006. Um, <laughs> and I wasn't sure how many interviews I was going to do. When I started, but pretty soon after I started, I realized I had to do one. To, I'd do it every week. So 52, roughly, uh, guests a year. Uh, are there 52 interesting economists, 104, um, 156? You know, how many are there? Uh, well, it turns out there are quite a few. And you, you can actually interview a lot of people more than once. <laughs> so that's another way <laughs> to, to get uh, fill up the hour. But of course, as you mentioned earlier, over time, I started to expand outside of economics. And it, I began by talking to people who were who did work that was related to economics. So an historian writing about the Great Depression or a psychologist dealing with issues that economists are interested in. But in the last year or two, I've started to just deal with issues that are broadly related to, as you said, the human enterprise and uh, keeps me interested. So how do I find them? Well, 
people do send me suggestions. That's not uncommon. Um, the suggestions, here's, here's the groups they fall into. Guests that I have no interest in talking to because I'm not interested in what they write about. So I just say thank you, and I don't invite them. Uh, then there are guests I've already invited multiple times, and they've turned me down. Uh, so even though you'd like to hear me interview so-and-so, I've tried. Really, I have. Um, and then the third category, of course, is uh, a guest who I'm. Ex it's a great idea. I've never heard of them. I look at their work, and I realize, wow, this is fantastic. Uh, I'm going to learn something, and I invite the guest, and they say yes. So – uh, I spend a lot of time on the internet looking for interesting ideas and, and books and articles. Um, readers, listeners, people on Twitter are, make suggestions all the time, and I'm always happy to have them. I just ask people not to be disappointed. Oh, there's a fourth category, I guess, I forgot about. You have to interview so-and-so. Turns out I've already interviewed him, sometimes more than once, but they just <laughs> they don't check the archives, and they've only started listening for the last six months, and you know, realize their archives. So all 660 plus episodes are available in one way or another without charge if you know how to look. So the way you look is you can go to econtalk.org and every single episode is there. Uh, if you're on your phone, if you subscribe to econtalk, you'll get the last three years. If you want episodes before 2015 or maybe 2016 now, you have to download a year at a time when you search for EconTalk in your, say, uh, podcast app at, at on your iPhone or your Android phone. You'll have a chance to subscribe to the general feed, EconTalk, but there's also the old annual collections going back to 2006. So every single episode is available. They may not all be of interest to you. Uh, I wasn't as good an interviewer, I like to think, back then as I am now, but they're pretty good, and there's some really interesting people back there. And some of them, those folks aren't alive anymore, so I can't interview them again. I've got interviews with Milton Friedman and Gary Becker and Ronald Coase and Christopher Hitchens, just to mention four great thinkers who you know, are, we've lost. So I'm happy that we have those interviews up there for people to listen to if they're interested. Um, I'm curious how you prep for the shows. Do you find yourself reading uh, books differently? Oh, absolutely. So there's two kinds of books I read. There's the book that I adore and love, and I read every word. And um, sometimes, very rarely, I'll read that book twice before I interview the guest. Uh, a recent example, I interviewed Sebastian Younger about his book, Tribe. I read the book, loved it, tried to get a hold of him, couldn't. Uh, finally was able to get a hold of him. He did agree. By the time he agreed, I hadn't read the book in maybe a, a month or two. It's a very short book. It's a few, it's a hundred something pages and it's really even shorter than that compared to most hundred something page books. And so uh, I read it again and I loved it again. It's a great book. Uh, but most books fall into two categories. I either read them like that, not twice, but I read them through and enjoy the, the reading. And it's a book I'd read on my own. But every once in a while, I, you know, I pick a book that looks interesting or the first chapter is fantastic, and then I realize, oh, my gosh, this is a very long book. Uh, I'm not interested in every page, and I don't have time to read every page. So what I do then is I read um, – I don't read every word, but I do read every page. I skim, but I skim in a, in a, in a kind of – scanning the page kind of way to see if there are any ideas or things that I would miss. I want to at the before I do the interview, I want to have a full picture of the book and the author's ideas. And again, sometimes that requires you to read every word, but not always because there are many things in the book I'm not going to talk about. What I what I don't want to do, I don't want to say, well, I'll just find 10 or 15 interesting things. I'll just leaf through it. I don't think that's I don't feel that's very that's fair to the author. So I try to get the picture of the entire book, either by reading every word or certainly look, reading it or looking at every page. And then when I'm done, I, I sit down and I and I sometimes have highlighted sections that interest me, and I use those to generate the questions. But usually what I do is I just sort of sit back and I try to think of what's the narrative of ideas that would be of the most interest to a, re, to a listener who might not read the book. 
that'll give them the flavor of what's most interesting about this book. Sometimes there's things in the book I'm not interested in. I'm not, I'm not going to ask the author about them unless they're related to other things. But in general, I try to pick the most interesting ideas in the book and give the author the chance to expound on them. And it used to take me a fairly long time to generate those questions. As I've gotten more experience, that piece of the prep time is extremely short. Um, and having said that, I still occasionally forget, you know, after the interview is over, I think, why didn't I ask about, you know, fill in the blank. But in general, I have a, um, a pretty good list of, of the things I think not only are interesting, but that when tied together will give the listener an overview of the of the author's ideas. And that's 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 the ideal uh, situation. As I said, sometimes you get a, a book that's kind of a snoozer. And you realize we're going to have to talk about some things not quite – they're only related to the book. Uh, we're going to have to take this in directions that I didn't expect because, you know, when I picked up the book or read the first chapter or had the saw the review, I didn't realize fully what it was about. And that happens a couple times, three times a year maybe, four times a year. And I just – you got to roll with the punches there. So you mentioned this idea of, of having a sense of responsibility to the interviewee. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, so as I've gotten older and more experienced, um, I, I try hard, it's not always succeed, try hard to remember that the show is not about me. It is my show. <laughs> I get <laughs> about 50% of the airtime, maybe a little bit less in an ideal world, maybe 35% of the airtime. Occasionally I have comments to make on what the guests say. It's not just that I ask long questions in a conversation. Again, I don't want to just ask them a question and have them answer. So I get a decent amount of airtime, and that and it's I'm the host, so I can start to believe if I'm not careful that the show's about me and my fascinating ideas. Uh, and I think that makes for a less interesting show than if the show's about the guest and the guest's fascinating ideas and occasionally my commentary on them. So, you know, I think the and also, to be practical, I want people to enjoy being on the show so that they'll come back and that they'll, other people will want to be on the show who are interesting. So I try to put the you know the guest at the center of the episode, not me. And it's easy to say that, you know, uh, and you think, well, of course it's not about you, but our egos sometimes get in the way. So the challenge is for me to make sure that the intellectual content the educational content that the guest brings to the table is the center of the episode. Now, occasionally, I'm going to have a strong disagreement with that, and that's listeners like that. They like when I politely, respectfully disagree with a with a guest. But in general, across the spectrum of guests who I agree with, disagree with, etc., the goal is to let them expound on what they've been working on, thinking about, etc., and um, to let them shine. I, you know, I try to always give them the last word for sure. And I try to pick the last word to be one that that lets them summarize something in a in a ideally in a way that moves the listener or it forms the listener. It's a show about education, and of course, if it's just about education, nobody wants to listen. It has to be somewhat entertaining. But my goal is for is to learn something. You know, people say to me, "How could you let so and so on your show?" For whatever reason, I always say, "Well, I learned a lot from them." and I hope you did too. Or people say, that was the worst episode you ever did. That person's a jerk or an idiot or a fool or fill in the blank. And I always think, and I write some back sometimes, you missed a chance to learn something. I don't agree with the person either, but I did learn this, that, and the other, and you missed a chance. So a lot of us, I think, including me, we, we turn off our brain when we hear somebody who we don't agree with or we think is wrong, and we miss a chance to learn something we might otherwise have learned. Sure. So, so coming back more to the to the to the interview itself, you talked a little bit about the uh, the closing uh, idea of of these 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 moving moments that you've been able to generate over time. I'm curious if you think about the general arc of the hour long in interviews as well, and how you try to uh, structure them, or, or is it more of a, a free form thing? Uh, that's a good question. So we're we're you and I are doing this over Skype, and almost all of my interviews are done over Skype. I do maybe five a year that are face-to-face, -face, either because I'm out in California and there's some interesting guest nearby, or someone happens to be in Washington and wants to do it face-to-face. -face. And people always say to me, well, face-to-face -face is better. 
And that's not true. Could be better, but often it's not. And the reason is, is that face-to-face means you're sitting, I'm sitting with a stranger, a person I have no connection to other than I've invited them to be on my program. They're sitting across from me in a, alone in a very quiet room. It's a room that's not particularly designed to be comfortable in and conversational because we don't want any distractions, audio distractions. And sometimes the author or the guest is shy and is uncomfortable being five feet away from a stranger. And worse, the stranger, that's me, I'm not always paying attention. So they're trying to make eye contact with me to make some important, powerful point that that they feel very strongly about. And I'm looking at my notes. I'm watching the clock. I'm making sure the Skype connection is still good. <laughs> and you know, I warn them in advance of that. But it's very disarming. It's not a easy thing to sit there and, and when you know and keep your focus on the conversation as the guest when the host isn't exactly giving you 100. percent But I can't give 100. percent I have to be aware of, gee, which how many questions are coming up? Do I want to cut off this answer at this point, or do I want to let him just keep going? Ooh, should I interject a clarifying question? They just use some jargon. Should I stop them and ask them to explain it? Do I interrupt? What if they're just rambling on? I have guests sometimes that just ramble and ramble and ramble. I'm thinking, I'm bored. My listeners are bored. I think I better, you know, interject. So all that's going on in my mind, as well as the question you just asked about the arc of the hour. I want to make sure that certain things get in into the hour. And I I have to keep an eye on where we are in the narrative arc and where we are on sure, the clock so let, let's talk about let's talk about interruptions for a second i feel like this is something that the best interviewers uh feel comfortable with confident with uh and sort of just jump in and and from my perspective it seems to me like that this is the this is one of the parts of doing interviews in person that is that comes more naturally that is a little 100 percent um in, in, interrupting people on skype is is awkward there's this time delay yeah. So actual conversation, the amount of interruption in an actual conversation depends on the person and the style and the culture you're in and all that. And you're 100% right that when you're face-to-face, I can send verbal cues, nonverbal cues to my uh, conversational partner that I, I have something to say or I'm interested in responding to what you're saying. And I can't do that on Skype. And as you say, it's worse than that because there's a delay and I, many, many times I've been interviewing someone and I try to interject something and they keep talking. And, it, and at first you think, oh, wow, they're really rude. They don't, they, don't, they don't let me get a word in. But it's really that they didn't hear it. And so I've, I've, I will edit that out, my interjection, because it makes them look rude because they didn't let me interject something. <laughs> sure. But that isn't what's going on. They literally don't hear it. It's either a bad connection or there's a delay. So when I started Econ Talk, and you can hear this, I'm sure, in the early episodes, I interjected and interrupted a lot more because I thought it made it more natural sounding. It's more conversational. Uh, some people complained about it, and I thought, yeah, maybe I, maybe I interrupt too much. So I interrupt – I try to interrupt less now than I did. I let the guest – unless they're rambling and, and are incoherent, which is rare – you know, they're just sort of off the track and I'm thinking, you know, where's this going? I try not to interrupt, even though in a conversation that was face to face, I might be doing that. So um, the other thing I do, and perceptive listeners have noticed this, is that I send positive verbal cue- verbal cues, even though it's over Skype. So I'll say, yep, and uh-huh, and sure, and things like that uh, under my breath or a little bit away from the microphone, just to encourage them, just to let them know, yeah, I, you know, I think that's the right point, or I think you're on the right track. And um, so I think, you know, those are available. It's sort of, it's sort of like just positive noises. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not much more than that. But I think it's a big challenge. It's a big problem with the current technology that I think will get better. Probably those delays, I think, will probably go down. So what other things besides interjections do you do to try to get these guests uh, comfortable? I don't do much. Um, you know, I when I when we start the process of the interview and I connect with them over Skype or Google Hangout or whatever it is, I, I sometimes spend 30 seconds trying to establish a little bit of rapport. But a lot of times they're real, people are busy. They're already giving me an hour, sometimes now a little more than an hour. So I, I feel kind of 
I think it's unfair to chit chat with them to try to relax them. And so I do that in the interview. I'll, I'll tell you two other things I do. When I first started, and again, if you go back and listen, uh, I would have a opening question uh, that might be something like, uh, ask, you know, ask them about their book or some topic I want to ask about. Let's say it's um, uh, tax rates, just to pick a boring and uninteresting <laughs> example. <laughs> so I would put in my notes tax rates for my after my introduction. And what I found I did, and it drove me crazy, and I'm sure it drove listeners crazy, and I hear it on other podcasts and I hear it on other online interviews, is that having introduced the guest and now I'm about to ask the first question – I really would struggle to get that question out. You know, I'm a little nervous. The guest is a little nervous. And I'd, I'd start just, I'd be do the rambling thing myself. I'd say, well, I wanted to start with, uh, you know, tax rates and, and their impact on, on, say, work incentive. I mean, what do you think there's, I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of differences in the literature. I mean, there's different, I mean, where do you stand? You know, that kind of opening. <laughs> and if you go back, yeah. you'll, you'll hear me kind of, you know, the, the word for it, it's not a word, It's but it's the right way to say it. I'm fumping around. I'm just kind of a little bit lost, and that's probably Yiddish. But after a while, I realized that's just so um, hard to listen to, especially as the opening 30 seconds. And often yeah. it would go on because I'd be kind of trying to find the end of the question. And so what I've done since for a long, long time now is I sc script the introduction and the first question word for word. And that might be 75 words. And, and I probably didn't do the introduction word for word in the old days. You know, I'd say so-and-so is a professor of economics at Central State University. Their book is da-da-da-da. And uh, welcome to Econ Talk. But now I, I give it a little th more thought and I write it out verbatim and I write out that first question verbatim. And that first question usually has some introductory remarks, say, about the book. And when I used to do those on the fly, they're they're awful. <laughs> you know, first yeah. I, I justified it to myself saying, well, it's more conversational. It's it's off the cuff, but it's not. It, no, it, but it's boring. It's, it's boring. It's, it's, I think you, talk, you talked about the kind of respect for the, the author and the yep. respect for the audience idea. And it's like – okay, how many X thousands of people are going to be listening to this? And uh, you couldn't take the 30 seconds to script out the part when you were nervous. Yeah. Um, it's it's funny because I actually had the same exact experience of my first handful of episodes where I would stutter on the first question, yep. stutter on the interview. And then uh, Kaiser Kuo of Seneca basically told me, Jordan, just script the first uh, few questions and things will go a lot smoother. Yeah. And um, they, they have, which is a, it, it's a funny thing how, you know, even after, uh, you know, you recording hundreds of episodes, there's still a little bit of nerves because as oh, you said, you're talking to a stranger. Yep. And I just gave you a bunch of yeps and an absolutely and a little laughter <laughs> and you just gave me some laughter. Those are those kind of positive cues I was talking about, but the point is exactly right that it's not, it, there's that nervousness about, I'm not sure where it's going. And then you can also work yourself into a state because you realize oh my gosh i'm really rambling on this question and <laughs> you're really in trouble so anyway i script those out and uh i usually i usually script out a bunch of the questions but i don't always end up asking them in the word-for-word -word way because something may have come up in the meanwhile so you mentioned that there are other podcasters uh interviewers who you admire could you talk a little bit about uh who are the folks you look up to who do this sort of thing I don't have – I don't listen to many, uh, actually. Um, I'm not a commuter. I don't exercise enough. And when I do, I don't <laughs> listen to podcasts. I don't have a dog. What do you listen to when you exercise? Uh, rock – you know, Irish music, <laughs> typically. Uh, <laughs> Irish music, yeah. okay. If I'm, work, if I'm doing something that's physically demanding, I like um, bluegrass, Irish music, uh, music that has a driving beat, but um, – not ballads, not Irish ballads, but um, so I don't really listen to many podcasts. I, I I don't I don't have a lot of role models because I don't uh, or people to steal from because I just don't listen to them. The you know this American Life is is um, 
is uh, fabulous. And there, there's, I'm blanking now on my other, the other one I really like. Um, Terry Gross. No, I don't listen to Terry. I know I've no, heard, you know. No, not into her? No, well, I just All don't. Right. I think she's great. Whenever I've listened to her, I've enjoyed it. I'm thinking of another podcast. It's not 99% Invisible. It's another one that's skipping my mind right now. Uh, it'll come mm-hmm. in a second. But uh, here's the thing. Most of the great podcasts, and I mean the kind that blow me away, where I'm just moved to tears or just, you know, I get goosebumps. They're doing something different than what what I'm doing. They're running a online storytelling magazine. You know, this is this American Life is vignettes and stories from the American experience, and that's not what I do. I'd love to do that. I just don't do it. Um, sure. I interview people. So if you're asking me who are the great interviewers, yeah, Terry Gross is a fabulous interviewer. I don't hear her very often. Um, there aren't a lot of people uh, that I that I think of or know of. I've kind of tried, you know, I've tried to develop my own style. I, I wish I had somebody I could steal more from, but I, but I don't. Today's podcast is sponsored by the University of San Francisco. As you all know, I'm currently on the job hunt and have recently been spending a lot of time on LinkedIn looking for policy-related jobs at tech firms. I keep running into these job listings with titles like economist at places like Airbnb and Uber, but my sorry technical skills mean I never instant apply for those. If I'd only known that at the University of San Francisco's new at Masters in Applied Economics, in two short years as opposed to the six or seven it takes for a PhD, you could get the skills needed to join one of those teams. The program combines economics training with practical skills and data analytics needed to understand the new digital economy. Plus, for those non-U.S. students out there, as the program is designated STEM, you can keep working in America for three years after you graduate with no visa issues. To learn more and get an application fee waiver, go to usfca.edu slash Jordan. Now accepting applications for this fall. Do you think Adam Smith would have done a good job as the host of a interview-based podcast? I don't think so. Um, he did have a characteristic that I like to think helps me, which is intellectual curiosity. Uh, I think what makes Econ Talk one of the things I like about the show, and, and I, as you point out, we've gone to a wider array of topics, is that I don't just talk about Bitcoin every week. Now, I have many listeners who wish I did talk about Bitcoin every week. Or monetary theory, and we have a we have a lot of episodes on Bitcoin, and they go back a long way. We were early on Bitcoin, and we were we have a lot of episodes on monetary theory. But I don't have a lot more to learn right now about Bitcoin or monetary theory. I don't want to be I don't want to sound arrogant. It's not not that I know everything about them. I don't nothing close. The problem is I don't think there's anyone else who does either. If I could meet that person, if I could learn something from them, I'm still happy to talk about either of those. But in general, I'm going to talk about other things, uh, things I think are more interesting that I can learn more from those interviews. And so that's that's my goal. Now, Adam Smith, he was interested in tons of stuff, astronomy, uh, economic history, fascinating questions of how we should organize education, uh, the role of trade, the human condition, uh, what makes us tick, our the respect we want from our people around us. So he was interested in tons of stuff. And people call him the first economist. I really think of him as the first social scientist. He was interested in psychology and history and philosophy and economics and sociology and anthropology. So, you know, he and he wanted to think in a somewhat systematic way about those things, which is why he still has uh, something to teach us. But I think in that sense, he, I think he'd make a good podcast host. On the other hand, uh, he, he was a bit of an offbeat person, as far as we know. We don't know that much about his personality. But he had a lot of close friends. He was a social person. So maybe he'd be good at it. I don't know. Hard to know. Okay. I don't think his, so, reco- so I don't think his recording ability was very high. So he, 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 <laughs> I don't think he had a good Skype connection in 1759. So he'd have to find a – maybe just chat with David Hume, and they'd write it down. Yeah. That would be good. Have somebody take notes. I'm sure, I'd love to have those transcripts. We unfortunately cannot listen to the uh, Hume Smith hour, but we still do have some of the standouts from Econ Talks Library. So I'm curious if there are uh, a few shows that were particularly memorable to you over these years that you'd like to uh, recount and any life lessons or podcasting, interviewing lessons you think you've learned from uh, from some of these standouts. Sure. 
Um, by the way, the podcast I was trying to think of a minute ago is Radio Lab. I love Radio Lab. Oh, sure. Uh, I, I've only listened to maybe 20 episodes, but 15 of the 20 are just blew me away. Uh, and and it, I do get inspired when I listen to a great podcast like that, but it isn't quite what I'm doing. So it's not that easy to learn from it. Um, so what are the episodes that are most memorable to me? Well, a bunch of them stand out. Uh, interviewing Milton Friedman uh, shortly before he passed away was was very uh, gratifying and moving for me. Uh, I think I talked too much in the episode, uh, but it still was pretty cool. And I interviewed him in his apartment in San Francisco, uh, like I don't know, maybe the 30th floor of a tall, very tall building, maybe the 40th. It was scary and beautiful, and, and I'm recording face-to-face. And I knew Milton a little bit, so I wasn't terribly nervous about that. I was nervous that it wouldn't be recorded accurately. There was some noise outside from construction that was drifting up. And I just, you know, I was, and I knew it was precious because um, I, I was aware that I might not be able to interview him or see him again. And it turned out to be the case. So that one is special. We divided that into two parts. And those are the old days. They're, neither part's very long. We wouldn't do that now, but there's a part on uh, his book, Capitalism and Freedom, and a part on his book on monetary theory, a monetary history of the United States. And we talk about inflation. It's it's a good conversation. So that's special. Um, I interviewed Christopher Hitchens at his house. Um, he invited me over for lunch beforehand. We had a scotch, just like you'd expect. Uh, I don't remember what the scotch was, to my shame. I, I think it was Johnny Walker, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, Christopher Hitchens was an extraordinary conversationalist. Uh, so his and, and I was lucky enough to interview him about his hero, uh, George Orwell. And so the, I'm I find that that was just a thrill. And I'm still, you know, many people say it's the, one of their favorite episodes. It was a long time ago now, but um, he's just an amazing expositor and an amazing speaker of the English language. Um, the interview I did with Brendan O'Donohoe on potato chips uh, is a favorite of many listeners and of my own. And I don't know if I talk about it on the air, but Brendan was a at the time was a exec for uh, Frito Lay, the potato chip snack company, and he invited me to come out to their factory, which I really wanted to do. I was really interested in uh, industrial food processing. Uh, I'm a strange person, as one is. Who isn't? Uh, but but I can make it interesting, I think. And so I thought that would be really fun. But it was a few hours away, and I thought I don't really have time for it. Instead, what we did is we spent an hour together in a grocery where he showed me uh, where all the Frito-Lay products were and why they were where they were. And then we talked about it on air for an hour. And I, I'm, I'm pretty sure we did talk about the fact that we toured the grocery, but that was incredibly fun, incredibly interesting. Uh, excuse me, not, not, not what you think. So that was really fun. Um, I had a very challenging conversation with Jeffrey Sachs that's memorable to me. I had interviewed Nina Monk. If you're interested, you should go back. You start with the Nina Monk episode. Nina Monk wrote a book about Jeffrey Sachs, an economist doing development projects in Africa. And her book was very critical. She started off as a big fan of him, but after she saw what was going on, she was less excited. And she wrote a very um, open-eyed book about the challenges of development in Africa and fighting poverty. And Jeffrey Sachs did not like that book uh, and asked to come on the program. I, I thought at the time maybe I should, you know, invite him on to answer her. But then I thought, you know, econ talk, you know, he does, Jeffrey Sachs doesn't need to respond to econ talk. He can be in the New York Times whenever he wants. But he asked to be on sure. and I said, sure, I'll be, that's, that'd be great. So he, he came on and, uh, I'll just say he was critical of me, and I was not prepared for how critical he was. So that was a character builder, um, and I handled it of, eh, pretty well. Not great, but it was an interesting experience. Learned a lot from it. So that was a memorable one. Um, I've interviewed a lot of people who are my heroes. So I got to interview Mark Halperin, who's my favorite novelist, who wrote Winter's Tale and Soldier of the Great War and The Pacific. He's just an incredible prose writer. He wrote a book about property rights. And so that was an excuse to talk to him. I got to interview Bill James, Bill James, the who writes on baseball and other things as well. But we talked about data and statistics and what we can learn from them. 
and that was last year. That was an amazing experience for me. Uh, Milton Friedman, uh, Ronald Coase, probably one of my five favorite economists also. I uh, interviewed him. I think he was 102. Um, that was a lot of fun. And I would say I'm probably missing a few people. Um, well, Alex Shelley, the cook, the chef who uh, was on Chopped. That was a blast. Uh, talking to her about how to run a great restaurant in New York City and the challenges of that. And, you know, when you have when you have the ability to ask dumb questions of really smart people, you, you learn some great things. And so just, there's just a lot of them over the years that that gave me a thrill, you know, literally gave me a thrill where I'm nervous because I'm so excited for the chance to talk to so-and-so. So that that's just that's a wonderful part of my job. It's an oddly emotional experience listening to you talk about these episodes because – for a number of them, when you say them, I can I can see in my mind exactly where I was listening. You know, it's 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 interesting how these episodes they kind of they they hit the audience in a certain moment, and and sometimes they they end up resonating in a way that that seems kind of outsized, and they just kind of like line up with wherever your life and head is at the at the time. I'm curious if you could walk us through maybe some of the most interesting uh, audience responses that you've had to these. Uh, these certain shows and and what uh, what particular episodes have have meant to uh, different people. Yeah, I don't know. That's hard because um, you know, as you know, one of the challenges of being a podcast host is that you you're not always sure how people react because um, most of them don't tell you. By definition, you I get emails. Sure. I get emails. Uh, any episode though that I think is great. Uh, well, I'll say a couple of things. First of all, there are episodes that I don't love that ep- that stu- that listeners do. And that always thrills me. <laughs> it's like you know, I put an episode out and think, oh, this was so. Right. So we got a little Freudian slip there. You said you were going to say students. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think of myself as a teacher. I, you know, I taught in the classroom for thirty years, and I don't teach in the classroom anymore. And people say, "Do you miss teaching?" And I think, well, I'm still doing it. I'm just not doing it in the classroom. And econ talk is my classroom to some extent. As I said earlier, sure. my goal is to help people learn stuff, and and when people ask questions that are – say things that I think are confusing or have ramifications that they haven't explored, that's where we're doing the learning. And anyway, uh, or just listening to the guest. So you know, a lot of times, as I said, I'll put out an episode that I think is sort of disappointing, and people love it, and that, that always thrills me. It always makes me happy. Uh, and occasionally I'll put out an episode that I think it doesn't make you angry in any way. No, like, like man, no. this dumb audience, <laughs> no. like they have no taste. No, what I, here's what I here's what I struggle with. What I struggle with is when when someone says this is the worst episode you've ever done, and that'll be a comment or uh, a response on Twitter or an email. And I always want to write back, oh, do you disagree with the author? Because that's what they really mean. They really mean is mm. you've never had a guest on who I disagreed with so much. And that's not a good argument for what I mean, calling it a really bad episode. Uh, to me, sure. uh, I don't want to have episodes on where people just agree with me. And the other thing I love, it's not quite what you asked, but I'm going to tell you anyway. You know, People say, how could you let so-and-so say that and not respond? How could you let them get away with that? And I always, I always, when I can, I write back and I say, first of all, if I disagree, if I spoke up every time I disagreed with a guest, the guest would get no time. <laughs> I'd be talking the whole time. <laughs> I disagree with lots of things my guests say, but this more important point is: so what's the what's the harm? You're worrying what that listeners might think it's true because I didn't point out that it's wrong. That's your job, listener. I trust my audience. I try – a lot of times somebody will say something. I'll challenge it. They'll respond. And I think it's a really bad response. But I'm not going to then get into an argument with them. I expect my listeners to understand, oh, boy, they really didn't have a good answer to that. Or vice versa. I have mm. I have a lot of – I love it when people say, uh, oh – um, You lost that one. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So-and-so got the better of Russ in their exchange. And I'm thinking, oh, so you agree with them beforehand and after. Okay. And and all the people who disagree with them and say, oh, no, Russ got the better of it. I always think, oh, you already agreed with me. You know, it's so it's so subjective and so much based on your previous biases. And, yeah, it's kind of funny. Do you feel like shows in general are predestined to be good? Or um, do you feel like you can sort of save shows halfway through? 
Um, or, I mean, I guess it's good not to get resigned after like a week first 20 minutes. Uh, well, I don't edit my episodes other than when I lose my train of thought or the guest coughs or I cough or whatever, um, except for in a few exceptions. And those exceptions are almost always where I'll tell a guest. It's not, every once in a while a guest says to me, I shouldn't have said such and such. Can we cut that out? And I, my view is almost always yes, because I'm not a news show. It's not a gotcha show. I don't care uh, that if you look stupid on my show, <coughs> I don't want you to look stupid. No reason. So if you made a mistake, you said something you regret, I'm happy to take it out unless it ruins the flow of the conversation. And very rarely, every once in a while, we'll go down a rabbit hole, the guest and I will realize, boy, that really was a incredible digression that went nowhere and i will cut that out if uh occasionally but very very rarely like once a year maybe uh so in general if it's not going well uh i'm just sitting there going boy this is not exciting i try to amp up my energy level at that point uh and try to think of more interesting things to say to keep the listeners entertained and again my i have a very low bar for a good episode my good episode is I learned something. I mean, to me, that's very fab. That's fabulous. I don't. I don't want to really suggest it's a low bar. It's really great, and it might just be one thing. And I had a guest on earlier this year or last last year, recently, AJ Jacobs, who wrote a book called Thanks a Thousand, and uh, we talked about gratitude. We talked about the book, which had a lot of economic content, even though it was about gratitude. And but we also just talked about the psychological aspects of being grateful and and thanking people and what what that means. And he, in the course of the conversation, he mentioned that he has a, a, uh, he keeps a list called one thing. And in one thing, when he goes to a lecture or has a conversation or reads a book or comes back from a movie or whatever it is, if there's something that he wants to remember from that, and it's usually just one thing, he writes it down. And I think that's just a fabulous habit. And I've started my own file on my computer called one thing where I do that. If I, if something comes up in a conversation that I want to remember or that I think is precious, I write it down because you will not remember it. And it's lovely to go back through it and just be stimulated by the last year's one thing. Uh, but in general, uh, one thing is a huge number. One is a big number. So if I can have a conversation that where one thing comes out of it that's memorable, uh, and I'm not going to describe this in, uh, explicitly, but I have lots of episodes that I thought were duds where the guests were not that exciting. and But I learned one precious thing that, that I think about years later and still remember. And uh, that's that makes an episode great to me. You know, that's 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 a high level of achievement. I don't mean on my part. I mean on the, on the result of the conversation. So, you know, I don't – when you have a, quote, boring episode, you know, the other comment I get from, from – the that I, that I love from listeners is, you know, when I, when I looked at the title of this one, I thought this is going to be horrible, but it wasn't. And I'm thinking, yeah, of course it yeah. wasn't. That's why would I give you a horrible guest? <laughs> and usually I pick the guests to be interesting. Yeah. And, and even though they might not look interesting, I had to talk to them for an hour and I usually had to read their book. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting though because I, I I do have this tension that you that you mentioned before where sometimes you read the book and you and you read the first chapter and you you know you only have so many hours in a week so you can't pre-read a book and then reach out to someone right so um you know it is it is it is tricky because sometimes I feel like I get myself into episodes where um you know after doing the research it's kind of like all right, I guess we're, um, you know, you don't, you, you kind of lose that thrill that you initially got when the person, when the person agreed to it. Yeah, there's the, uh-oh, you know, I'm halfway through the book and I realized this is not interesting. But usually it's, it's usually, I, 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 you know, that's the goal of a, that's the challenge to being, of being a, a good interviewer, I think, is when you have a, a situation like that and you make lemonade out of that, those lemons, because it, you can do it. It's usually, whatever yeah. caused you to, pick the book or the guest in the first place, there's something there that's special. You just have to uncover it. And again, it might, it might of the 60 minutes, 20 or 30 might be somewhat dull, but there's going to be a, you know, my goal is that there's a gem somewhere. You know, ideally there's 50 or 60 minutes of, of, of jewelry, but it, that's, that's, that's unrealistic. Um, 
And so um, sometimes you got you to gotta hope for one. Can you talk about the challenges and possibilities inherent in interviewing people who are have very different backgrounds from you? Um, you know, I feel like I kind of gravitate or have gravitated too much towards like white American youngish men who are interested <laughs> in China just because we're I know exactly what their wavelength is. And yeah. I'm like pretty sure we're going to have a fun conversation. And, you know, for you, there's the like Ph.D. economist uh, like libertarian who's writing about economic theory or what have you. Yep. Um, but I'm curious how you kind of adapt yourself and your preparation and your approach to folks who you don't what's in Chinese, it's Ijen Rugu. It's like, as soon as you see them, it's like you've, you've known them for a long time. Yeah. Uh, there's three aspects of that. I'm not sure I'm going to remember all three, but I'll, I'll try. I'll get started. Um, first, there are people who disagree with me, who come at the world very differently than I do. And that's always interesting. Listeners really like that. I try to get those guests on as much as possible. They don't always agree because they don't, they're afraid they're not going to be treated well. One of my favorite episodes will be the ones where the guest at the end says, I enjoyed that. And you can hear their surprise in their voice because <laughs> they weren't yeah. expecting to. They agreed to it, either with their publisher. They put so, their body armor on. Yeah, they were all ready to go to war. And, and then it turned out we had a good conversation. So those are always fun. Um, it The non-economists, for me, I, I've always had wide interests and I read fairly widely. So when I have a guest on that is uh, outside of economics, I usually have read something about their field or something about their work that besides the book itself that I can bring to bear on it. And I, and I think that's really important at this point about people not like you, because for me, the part that I find intellectually uh, satisfying about being the host, I don't know how much listeners appreciate or enjoy this, but for me, the a lot of the thrill, intellectual thrill of the interview is realizing some connection that the guest did not realize or seeing a connection with a previous episode or a theme in economics that is, even though I'm not talking to an economist, and you know, sometimes I'll, I'll invite a guest and they'll say, oh, I, I can't be on your program. I don't know any economics. And I say, well, that's my job. I'll talk about the economics mm -hmm. of what you're talking about, and then you'll respond to it, or you'll talk about the history or the psychology or whatever it is. Um, so for that kind of diversity, you know, obviously you have to have you read, have to read outside of economics, and I do, so that that's uh, I can pull that off to some degree. And then the third kind, people not like me or people who aren't white males, I, I, I wish I had more of that kind of diversity. Uh, most economists are men, uh, so I've tried fairly hard, it's not easy, to invite more women onto the program, and they uh, often won't, can't, don't, aren't interested, you know, some of the more uh, illustrious women in economics are very much in demand and they don't want to give me an hour. So they just turn me down. Um, but increasingly women come on the program and that's great. And I, you know, I'm all, I'd like to have more. So um, it, that's a challenge. It's really easy to talk to people who are like you. And I also would add that the people who are just like me or quote somewhat just like me, the intellectual uh, brotherhood of free market oriented people uh, nobody wants to listen to people nodding for an hour. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I agree. Oh, yeah. That. Oh, yeah. And so yeah. one of the reasons I've moved away from my uh, from guests who are, quote, like me is because it's just not interesting. And I don't learn anything from those folks. Uh, now, that's not always true. I have lots of wonderful guests who are free market oriented. I've learned a ton from. Uh, in in real life and in on the on the program, but I'm not interested when someone will write a book that they know I agree with and they think, oh, of course I'll want to interview them. And the answer is not really, because I already know all that. It's not so interesting to me. And so mm. I, I've tried to diversify on that front. How has your emotional relationship to this show evolved over time? Well, I started. I thought I've always was interested in audio and I've always been interested in interviewing. Uh, or at least for a long time. And I always wondered whether I could do it on a regular basis. I, I, the idea of doing a weekly show seemed daunting. So when I first started, I thought, well, I'll just do this now and then, and we'll see what happens. And uh, as I said earlier in our conversation, it, at one point I realized it would be a good idea to have it every week. And 
I wasn't sure I could do it. I didn't know if that was like, wasn't sure I could generate the gas. I wasn't sure if I could find the time. And uh, eventually I just, you know, worked at it and, and, and it had to happen that way. And it did. So it started off as sort of an experiment, econ talk. It's not like I, I, I it's an important part of my career. But over time, as our listener base has grown steadily, uh, it's increasingly gratifying to me. So when you ask about my emotional connection to the show, the emails that I get um, make me realize that it's almost certainly the most important thing I've done. I mean, I've written four books and I have uh, videos that I'm proud of, and I've written a, a lot of essays and blog posts, but you know, econ talk is probably, um, you know, probably the most important thing I've done professionally. And and so I'm very proud of it and deeply gratified that people find it interesting. Uh, you know, I, I was just talking with John Popola, who was the co-creator with me of the Canesack rap videos. And when they came out, uh, a journalist told me that that would be my epitaph. He did the Canesack rap videos. And I thought, well, that's pretty depressing. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm pretty proud of those two, and and you know, with econ talk, am I? You know, I'm not. It's not that I'm not proud of my books. I like my books, but it surprised me over the years how much uh, emotional satisfaction and connection I have with uh, with doing econ talk. Um, it's it's uh, it's an incredible blessing to me that uh, Liberty Fund, which is the sponsor of the program and supported it from the beginning has allowed me to do this and allowed me to meet hundreds of fascinating people and spend an hour with them on in conversation. And uh, it's enriched my life beyond words. It's also, you know, it's also kept me intellectually alive. Uh, as I've gotten older, I'm 64 years old, and it would be tempting to just kind of work less. And instead, I find myself more curious than ever, more interested in learning about things more widely, and uh, I think it's because of Econ Talk. Russ Roberts, thanks so much for coming on China Econ Talk. It's my pleasure. China Econ Talk is edited by Jason MacRonald and Kaiser Guo and is a proud member of the Seneca Network from SUP China. For other great shows on China, check out the Caixin Seneca Business Brief, the Pan Daily Tech Buzz China, the New Voices Podcast, and of course, the Seneca Podcast, now in its ninth year. Until next week. Shut the